All right, welcome back to the Young Turks, guys. Uh, we've got a, a couple of great interviews for you guys, so let's get started. Joining me now is Dana Milbank uh, of the Washington Post. He recently wrote a column called Bernie Sanders has emerged as the Donald Trump of the left. Uh, Dana, welcome to the Young Turks. Good to be with you, Jake. Long time. It, ha it has been a long time. Uh, so thank you for joining us, Dana, I appreciate it. Uh, let's get to the heart of the issue because we don't have a lot of time. Uh, you have a consistent theme throughout this uh, article that I disagree with. And so I wanted to uh, challenge you on that. So you, you say in the beginning that uh, Bernie Sanders has a flair for demagoguery. Uh, then you talk about how he is scapegoating people like Donald Trump is. But in case, in his case, instead of immigrants, it's the top 1%. You say that he oversimplifies by blaming the top 1% and it's uh, and his message is about the nefarious elite and that's uh, unfair, etc. So I can go on, there's actually more examples. But Dana, I wanted to, to get your perspective on this because I'm curious, do you really think that the political donor class that is largely the 1% don't have outsized influence in our politics? No, of course I of course I think they have an outsized influence in our politics. You know, I, I think you're, a lot of this hinges on the word where I think I, I wrote in the column like perhaps what uh, uh, it, it, you know uh, arguably or I don't remember the word I use what you know what Trump is it, the, the way he's demagoguing uh, is worse. I mean, you know, look. We have. If you're doing the, if you're, if if your demagoguery uh, is about uh, telling uh, Americans that uh, it's it's people with uh, dark skin and immigrants who are to blame, we know where that leads. On the other hand, if you say, you know, the, the rich are to blame, and if we just uh, take it to them, all your problems are going to be solved. Well, we know uh, where that leads to because you know we've seen that in uh, in, in in China and uh, and and. and the Soviet Union. So I'm just saying, at its extremes, uh, it's not desirable to do either one. So that I mean, that that's the extent of the argument there. Obviously, I'm much more comfortable with uh, you know what what Bernie Sanders is doing and talking about uh, uh, taxing uh, the, the wealthy more. And what I what I what I wrote throughout that piece is I was really talking about. It's not the substance of uh, I'm much closer to Bernie Sanders in, in substance than I am uh, uh, to Donald Trump, but I was talking about uh, the style uh, that they use uh, on the stump, uh, you know, certain characteristics uh, uh, of their followers. And I've noticed since, I mean, this is already, you know, what, a month ago or so, I've noticed uh, there have been uh, several other uh, pieces uh, noting this. Uh, uh, and you had, what was it, I think it was Pete uh, Buttigieg uh, had, had, had talked about this a bit. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, at least superficial uh, similarities. And, you know, I, the Post just had a piece about how uh, uh, Sanders is uh, often rerunning the 2016 campaign in much the way Donald Trump is rerunning uh, the 2016 campaign. So I'm not saying they're the same person at all. I'm saying, if, if anything, it's sort of a mirror image uh, yeah. that uh, I think but this has been the left's reaction in some way uh, has been to have, you know, in some regards, in style, a Trumpian character as opposed to, you know, say, a, you know, a, a split the difference uh, Joe Biden kind of character. Right. So look, I want to get back to style and, and the talk of mirror image in a second, but I, I want to stay on the substance. Because there's two things you said there that I think uh, I would again uh, challenge. 
So one is you say, well, look, on the one side, you've got extremes. But Bernie Sanders is nowhere near Maoist China and Soviet Russia, not within miles and miles and miles, not within continents. Whereas Donald Trump is already at the extreme. During the campaign, he talked about total ban on all Muslims. Uh, saying that uh, Latino immigrants coming in there are criminals and rapists, and right. you can go on and on. Can you see how comparing those two, when one is already at the extreme and no, one, the other one is not anywhere near it, could be problematic? Cenk, I, I, I don't want to be at all in the position of defending Donald Trump. That certainly, you know, anybody who knows what I do would find that very bizarre. But I, I, I think it, I, I mean, it's not fair to say that uh, Donald Trump already is at the extreme, because if one extreme is Mao and Stalin, the other is Hitler. And I don't think you're saying Donald Trump uh, uh, is Hitler. Uh, yes, the, the, uh, the, he talked about a Muslim ban. What they actually did uh, uh, in the end after much uproar was, unfortunately, I think, but it was blessed uh, by the Supreme Court because uh, it, it was dressed up in such a way. So, you know, in fact, at, at the Post, you know, I've a few times I've called it a Muslim ban because I think that's what it is in, in the substance. And my editors have said, you know what, I want you to, not to say that because someday there may be a Muslim ban. And uh, so you've got to hold something in reserve. So I will grant you, I completely agree uh, that Donald Trump is much closer to that, uh, you know, fascist extreme than uh, uh, than Bernie is to the uh, the communist uh, extreme. So I, I, I mean, if that's what you're saying, I I, I certainly uh, agree that he's closer yeah, but, uh, to that poll. But I don't I don't think he's there. And I think you know the Hitler comparisons don't do anybody any good because it just shuts down the whole. Debate. Right, but I, of course, as you know, I didn't say that. So. Um, but if you're talking about he's uh, already there, and I don't, I think that's the, the we. That, yeah, that's no, no. I, but they, there's so look, we're talking about a spectrum here. So uh, he hasn't killed 13 million people, of course not, right? right? Uh, but as does far he? As we know. I mean, we haven't seen the tax return. No, but um, but Bernie Sanders wants us wants to get us closer to Norway, whereas Donald Trump uh, does not respect this form of democracy, and so. Uh, and, and so is it fair to say it is the beginnings of fascism? Yes, he says you should not cooperate with law enforcement. He talks about arresting his political enemies on no basis at all. No he calls the press the enemy of the people. This is right. definitely the beginning of fascism. It's not the end of fascism. Mm -hmm. Sandra Day O'Connor has that great quote, we should avoid those beginnings so that we could avoid those ends. Yeah. Now, I agree. Okay, and then, uh, but most importantly, back to the donor class. So. Dana, that is real, and you said, you know, you said it in the beginning. So one side blames the poor immigrant who just crossed the border without a dollar in his pocket, that has no power at all and no ability to fix the system, rig the system, or in any way control anything. The other side says, hey, the guys who write millions of dollars of checks to the politicians, maybe they're controlling the politicians, and that's a hundred percent true. So there, there's got to be a difference. And you can't compare one side that's totally wrong and the other side that's totally correct and say they're the mirror image unless you're saying they're the exact opposite. No, of course it's not the same thing, and that's not that's not what I what I argued in in the piece at all. You know, I you know, I think the the similarity and what worries me a little bit about Sanders, the similarity is a much narrower thing, and it in it in it's saying that there is somebody else responsible for our problems, if only 
Uh, you know, it's the foreigners, it's the Chinese, it's the killers and rapists from Mexico. Um, now, what Bernie's doing, believe me, I'm much more comfortable with, but it's also saying it's the 1% over and over again. Uh, and the truth is you could tax the 1% out of existence and it would not solve all of our uh, problems. So that's the similarity there that, you know, what I'm talking about. They're much more legitimate scapegoat. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's just, I, I think it's a little bit- But they're not a, a scapegoat, Dana. That's, that's what I'm trying to get at. It's not all the 1%, and I say it on the show a million times, LeBron James in the 1%, he didn't do anything wrong, Oprah is. He didn't. I would argue right. Bill Gates didn't do anything wrong. Some mm -hmm. people might have a bone to pick with that, but I, I do believe that. But if you're talking about the 1% that give money to the politicians, it's not yeah. scapegoating them. They yeah. are the problem. They are the right. exact epicenter of the problem. Well, I think it's scapegoating if you say they're the only problem that we have. So if, if you're not saying that, then we don't disagree. I, I, I don't hear Bernie saying much beyond that, the, the 1%. I think he's oversimplifying uh, the issue. I don't, I don't disagree that that's the problem and we have a ludicrous system uh, of, uh, of, of regressivity in this country. So, you know, again, I say uh, on the substance, I would just uh, like to uh, say that it's, you know, our problems are much bigger bigger than uh, the 1% uh, basically uh, uh, you know, uh, stealing from the other 99%. I'm just gonna touch on the style thing for one second, uh, Dana. So can you see that it, given this conversation, that when you say Bernie Sanders is largely right about the power of the 1%, but not exactly right or, or overstating it a little bit, versus the other guy is at the beginnings of fascism and comparing the two, can you see how the people on Bernie Sanders' side might take offense at that and see that as an invalid analogy. Well, I suppose so, but but again, you know, I, I've said I was saying that the style uh, is the same, and you keep saying, "Well, let's talk about the substance." I answer your questions on the substance, and then you say, and then you say, "Well, can you see why people are offended?" But that's not what I was writing about. Uh, in the first place, so it's uh, you know I, you know and you're 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 picking out that one element of it. I mean, it was a, a month ago. I'm you know I don't have it right in front of me, but it was a long list of uh, uh, stylistic similarities between the two. One of which uh, was the notion that I, this oversimplification and saying you know in in Trump's case we only blame the immigrants and the foreigners, and in Bernie's case we only seem to be blaming the one percent. So one more issue, and look, I think what my critique is fair, and I'm super happy that you're on to talk about it, because I think that there is a substantive issue and a stylistic issue. And the title of the piece is Bernie Sanders has emerged as Donald Trump of the left. So that's why people are concerned. But there's one other matter. You said Democrats need a unifying force to lure disaffected Trump voters in key states. Ah, never mind, in reference to Bernie Sanders. So. There is this ideology, it appears to me, in Washington, and and it's evidence in that sentence, that a centrist, more corporate-friendly candidate would do better than a populist progressive. But there doesn't appear to be any evidence to back that up. We had a centrist, corporate-friendly candidate; she lost to Donald Trump. We had plenty in 2016, I mean 2018, where we picked up a lot of seats, but we didn't pick up the seats in the Senate where we ran Joe Donnelly, Claire McCaskill, all centrist candidates who ran terrible campaigns and lost. Right. 
Yeah, you don't hear me making an argument for a centrist, corporate-friendly uh, uh, candidate. Um, so, I mean, that's that's that's. Uh, I agree with you. Is what I'm saying. Okay, so you you acknowledge that running a populist progressive might actually have a significantly better chance of winning. It uh, might. I mean, you know, I, I, it's impossible to rerun 2016. Might Bernie have won if he were the nominee? It's entirely possible. And what I also, uh, in a, you know, said in that piece is, I, you know, I, I it's not clear to me uh, that Bernie supporters are wrong in thinking that, that that this is the answer. We don't know. I mean, we do know uh, from polling, from uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, focus groups, uh, that people out there uh, uh, in the uh, the battleground state are saying they want somebody who can bring us together. They're not saying we want a corporate centrist. They're saying they want somebody who can bring us together. Um, now, can Bernie be that person? I, it doesn't appear to be the case, uh, you know, as opposed to a, a Joe Biden who is seen as non-threatening uh, to, uh, you know, the disaffected uh, Trump voters. But, you know, uh, what I'm saying here is all the rules are uh, have been tossed aside. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, or, or Elizabeth Warren or uh, or anybody else is going to be a you know better uh, nominee than Bernie. I have no idea. Yeah, so that's certainly fair. Uh, and and I have not seen the polls where people are saying let's bring people together. And and if they are saying that, they're certainly I don't believe they're saying let's bring Republican and Democratic politicians in Washington together. Both groups are largely hated. Well, I think they're. I think. I think they. They would like to see that. Well, they'd like to be done with Washington altogether. Uh, and yes, they. Uh, they would like to see uh, uh, bipartisanship. But you know, I mean, they would like to see higher wages for all Americans. And so I think that that might be a winning strategy. Call me that's crazy. true. But I, I. But what? But what? What is being picked up in focus groups uh, around the country is a desire uh, to end uh, the craziness. A Desire for calm, uh, you know, the notion that there's not going to be a new crisis uh, uh, every day, and I think that's, you know, what what people are getting at when they say uh, they want somebody who can bring us together. They want somebody who can just stop the madness. Yeah, I hear you on that. I have a lot to say on that too, but we're out of time. Dana, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it's, it. It's my pleasure. All right, enjoy the conversation. Thank you. All right, guys, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, Max Blumenthal with a very different point of view. All right, back on the Young Turks. Let's go to our next guest. Joining me now is Max Blumenthal. He is the author of a new book, The Management of Savagery, How America's National Security State Fueled the Rise of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Donald Trump. Uh, it's an interesting combination. Max has written for the New York Times, LA Times, Daily Beast, The Nation. He also has his own independent journalism outlet named The Gray Zone Project. Uh, Max, welcome to the Young Turks. Good to see you, Jenk. Good to see you. All right, so a lot to get to. Let's start with uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, let me start simple uh, or maybe complicated. Did we start them? Well, absolutely. We I wouldn't say the U.S. explicitly founded them, but the main theme of this book is how the um, U.S. national security state, which is kind of opaque, unelected entity, uh, we could best identify with the FBI and CIA, uh, cr- helped fuel the monster of international jihadism to achieve geopolitical goals from 
um, collapsing the Soviet Union to um, collapsing states like Libya and Syria, and in turn uh, wound up creating refugee flows and this monster of international jihadism that fueled the Islamophobia and right-wing xenophobia that helped uh, propel Donald Trump's successful presidential campaign. And I think, you know, when people look back at Trump's victory, they look at many reasons why he won. Um, and we rarely talk about the role of Islamophobia and xenophobia. And that's something that I think was constructed over the past two decades, in part because of the blowback we've received from the proxy war in places like Afghanistan, where the CIA dumped over $1 billion into the Afghan Mujahideen and helped bring figures like Osama bin Laden uh, to the Afghan border to support their goal, which was then collapsing the Soviet Union. So this book is really a history of all of the disastrous interventions and how it's led us to the kind of political catastrophe we're facing in the West. So I wanna talk about the purpose of that in a second, but let me just, um, Give you a little sense of, of where I come at this. Um, yeah. So I used to be much more interventionist. Um, in fact, I was very interventionist and then a little interventionist, and now I'm all the way on the side of uh, against intervention. Why? Facts. Facts happened. Uh, so yeah, we helped the Mujahideen fight against Russia, and that created uh, Bin Laden and Al Qaeda. It did. It did. That's a fact. Uh, and so. It doesn't mean we wanted Al Qaeda to rise, but it does mean that we did partly cause it, very largely helped cause it. And then we intervened in Iraq. Now I thought that was a terrible idea, and we were right about that. And did ISIS rise out of the ashes of Iraq? Definitely, definitely. There's no question about that. So intervention after intervention has been an absolute disaster. But that's a disaster for the American people, but maybe not a disaster for others. So. That leads to my question, Max, what's your sense here? Are, are we serial bunglers and we just keep intervening and then oops, we did it again and then we've got another problem and then we gotta intervene again and we just never learn the lesson? Or do you think that there are some people within the United States government who know that and are happy to do this because more war creates more economic opportunity for certain people? Now, that is a great question, and actually, I wouldn't be so hard on yourself. I remember uh, co-hosting one of your first shows back in the day in LA, and you were strongly against the war in Iraq at a time when most Americans were for it. Um, and I think that comes from an understanding of how destabilizing countries in the Middle East can lead to the rise of groups like ISIS. But what the US proceeded to do um, through figures like John Brennan, former CIA director, who's now seen as kind of a hero of the anti-Trump resistance, was to dump weapons into the Free Syrian Army, uh, which was kind of a repackaging of the Afghan Mujahideen. Uh, and this proceeded to become a weapons farm for Al-Qaeda and later ISIS to take over entire cities and neighborhoods and regions in Syria and allow ISIS to spread. What happens from there? Well, you have a refugee crisis. You have the worst refugee crisis since World War II. Uh, you also have a refugee crisis from Libya, where the U.S. supported groups like the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, which was uh, an affiliate of al-Qaeda. And John McCain actually flew to Libya to meet with its leader. And so you have refugee outflows from Libya and Syria, uh, driving far-right politics in Europe. But this achieves a goal for the neoconservatives 
who wanted to see these countries, which refused to have U.S. military bases inside their borders, which resisted Israel, um, and which generally acted independently from the U.S. sphere of influence, they wanted to see them weakened and destabilized. And so Syria is far weaker than it has been. Uh, It's part of the anti-Iran campaign that's been waged since 1979. And Libya is still in a state of civil war. And I think there are people in the U.S. national security state, people like John Brennan, who want to see these countries perpetually destabilized, even as these refugee outflows drive the rise of figures like Donald Trump and many Trumps across Europe. So Max, look, there are some people who benefit from the destabilization of the Middle East. Yeah. Um, maniacally, uh, the Israeli right wing thinks destabilizing the Middle East is a good idea for Israel. I'm pretty sure it's not, uh, but that is their stance. Uh, and so they think that they benefit from it. Uh, more importantly, uh, the uh, defense contractors make a lot of money from perpetual war, and that's exactly what yeah. we're in. And the, and the oil companies make a lot more money if there's uh, instability in the Middle East, which drives up oil prices without affecting their costs at all. And so, oftentimes, so I get that. But for the people inside the American government, do you think that they're actually thinking about that? Or do they tell themselves pretty little lies and they think, well, no, I care about geopolitical interests. And in the back of their minds, they're thinking, well, one day I might work for a defense contractor. Like, what's your sense of the, of the process there? I mean, you have the neoconservatives, um, the Douglas Fights and the Richard Pearls who are thinking about Israel first. Then you have people like Jim Mattis who just come out straight out of uh, you know, the military, uh, or people like Mike Pompeo, who represent the military and the corporate state of the Koch brothers, they're thinking about, you know, how the military can benefit, how this can drive defense budgets. Um, And then you have the liberal humanitarian interventionists, the people who are around Hillary Clinton. And I write about them a lot in my book, The Management of Savagery, because these are the people who conceived uh, the catastrophic uh, destruction of Libya. And Samantha Power believes that we have to save the people uh, from the evil dictator by essentially bombing them. This is why we saw influence operations like the Syrian white helmets constructed, uh, not out of Syria, but actually out of Turkey by a British military intelligence officer to convince us that by invading and bombing these countries, we're saving the children. And the result that we get every time is a humanitarian catastrophe, like we're seeing in Libya, where even CNN has reported that there are open air slave auctions. Um, The weakest and most vulnerable in these societies, religious minorities, Christians, Alawites, um, gay people, they and women suffer have suffered the most from our interventions. And of course, many of them wind up becoming refugees and driving this far right uh, politics across the West. So the liberal interventionist uh, philosophy, the response that we have a responsibility to protect civilians with our military was totally discredited in Libya. And I think the point of this book is to warn people that we should never do this again and that we should not allow these figures, the Susan Rices and Samantha Powers, the Hillary Clintons, back into government. Yeah. So Libya is actually what I'm uh, being hard on myself for. I think that's the, the uh, thing that I was uh, wrong about. And so, look, you know, back when I was a Republican, I was for the Persian Gulf War. I even did a pro-war rally, but I'm way past those days. Obviously, it's a different person. 
Uh, I was 100% right about Iraq, where this is one of the only two national shows who were saying don't go in. It's a terrible idea under under every circumstance. But on Libya, I, I was a, a liberal interventionist. And, and look, Max, I don't think intervention is wrong in every scenario. I, I think you would agree with that. World War II, in a sense, we intervene. Uh, I would argue the Korean War at least saved South Korea. And that was the facts in my mind that I was going under. And but now every single intervention has been an absolute disaster, including Libya. But that leads me to my question. So, okay, we've learned that going and dropping bombs, even if you don't have ground troops in a place like Libya, causes chaos. So, what's the alternative? Should we have let Gaddafi stay in power? Should we have let that slow motion civil war just go on by itself? What's the answer? Yeah, another good question, and it's it's kind of a false choice. My um, point to uh, the British parliamentary inquiry on Libya, as well as a report at the Harvard Belfer Center, um, which was sort of an autopsy on the Libyan intervention because it was deemed such a catastrophic failure, that showed that Gaddafi had already retaken every city um, at a cost of less than 1,000 lives. This was not the humanitarian catastrophe we thought it was. And this lie about him marching on Benghazi to slaughter everything was everyone was just that. It was a complete lie. Uh, the U.S. has had no place there, and we have to recognize that there wasn't some. There may have been protests for reform, but he was facing a militarized campaign by hardcore Islamist elements that were being armed by Qatar and the United States, and that if that arms flow had been cut off, the proxy war or the war that was going on in Libya would have never taken place. So, you know, if the U.S. would just get out and stop coordinating with Gulf monarchies that are far more reactionary than the dictators that we oppose, many more lives would be spared, many people would not be refugees or have drowned in the Mediterranean, and many less right-wing parties across Europe would not have been elected. Um, that's the lesson of this book. Of course, we should take in the refugees. We should welcome them. We should also welcome the people who are coming from Central America, from governments like Honduras, which were destabilized under the watch of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. But we shouldn't repeat these mistakes. And so I'd point to Venezuela as a country where we're actively trying to destabilize it through sanctions, as well as Iran. We're using sanctions as a weapon of war in place of conventional war. We should learn from these mistakes because if Venezuela experiences regime change, they're going to face an internal catastrophe that will be extremely violent. And the caravan that we saw on the border, I mean, Trump's going to have to build the highest wall in history uh, to hold back the migration flow that'll come from the catastrophe of Venezuela if the U.S. achieves its goal. Yeah. So we should prize stability and respect the people in these countries first. So Max, I only have time for one more question because I could talk yeah. to you a long time and I would love to get into Venezuela, but we're gonna have to save that for another time. So look, I, I, on the other hand, sanctions do also sometimes work. They worked in South Africa. So that's why I think it's a, it's a little bit more complicated and, and a harder puzzle to solve. I'm not saying we should invade any place where there's a dictator. We'd be invading half the, uh, the world and I don't wanna invade North Korea, invading uh, Iraq, even though they had a terrible dictator in Saddam Hussein, was still a terrible idea. But does that mean that you know we just let Gaddafi stay in Libya for as long as he's going to stay in Saddam and Assad, etc.? Like, is there nothing that could be done if we can't do sanctions? And I obviously don't want to do military intervention. Is there an answer or no? Libya previously was one of the most prosperous countries in Africa. Certainly not 
democratic, but neither is Uganda, uh, our ally. It had free schooling. It had free health care. It was stable. It had a minority population. And what we've seen since was not just the complete destabilization of the country and the erosion of its economy, um, but uh, the slaughter of many members of its Tawarga black population. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. We should have done nothing. But we have to recognize this is never about human rights. Venezuela is not about human rights. Syria, despite what the White Helmet said, was not about human rights. It's about opening up opportunities for American capital, for oil companies. It's about increasing defense budgets. And companies like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, uh, they have made a healthy profit while the people of these countries who did not want their governments decapitated and who want to be able to resolve their own problems internally, as we do, we Americans don't want to be interfered with by outside powers, obviously, uh, they should be respected. And so if you want to talk about meddling, I know, you know um, we debate this all the time about Russian meddling or Chinese meddling. I mean, if you want to talk about meddling, let's consider what the U.S. is doing in Venezuela and has done throughout the Middle East uh, since the Cold War. That meddling uh, makes anything Russia has done to us seem elegant. <laughs> elegant. Okay, <laughs> uh, we really got to go, but I, I, I want to say a couple of things in favor of Max real quick. Uh, look, in Libya, even as I supported the bombing in the beginning, as I saw that every country that was in favor of the bombing did not have oil contracts in Libya. And every country that opposed the bombing did have oil contracts in Libya. It gave me pause. Facts matter, right? And then we have dictators all across the world that we absolutely support, like Saudi Arabia. <laughs> the worst dictators arguably on the planet. And we're hunky-dory with them. We're not talking about human rights there. but. All of a sudden, two countries that have nothing to do with one another, Iran and Venezuela, they only have one thing in common. All of a sudden, we're really concerned about their human rights. And what a lucky break. It turns out they both have a ton of oil under the ground. And, and exactly. at, least, at least John Bolton did us a favor by going on Fox News and clearly stating that yes, they're doing it for the American oil companies. He just flat out said it. And, and Max also broke the story. Three weeks before the New York Times did that the trucks that were lit on fire in Venezuela were not by Maduro's military, by, by, by anti-Maduro protesters, and that was later verified by other media outlets. So Max, thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. I really appreciate it, Cenk. All right, um, we're out of time for this so-called half hour, uh, but we have more for you guys. If you're members, uh, we're gonna talk about my trip to Mexico, what I learned from that. My first time on a cruise, it's basically a fun conversation. I'll show you some pictures and go over my adventures. So tyt.com slash join to become a member of the Young Turks, get all of our progressive shows and the fun post games and old schools as well. All right, we'll see you there.